1: Welcome to Naked Reflections, brought to you from the Wolf Institute. I'm Ed Kessler, and each week I'll be taking an in-depth look at the stories reported by our friends over at the Naked Scientists. What does the latest scientific stuff mean for the rest of us? Stay with us and find out. Hello. When we did a Naked Reflections podcast on the subject of reconciliation recently, check it out in our archive. One of the panelists, Janet Soskis, took me to task.
2: I think there's a missing word in here, which I would say is peace.
1: I know this is reconciliation issue, not a peace podcast, but nonetheless,
2: I think you can have peace without justice because people need a basic level of peace to get on with life. What people want is quite simple. They want to raise their family simply. They want to love their friends. They want to have enough food to put on the table. And you can't have that without peace.
1: Janet's observation got us thinking. And the result? Peace is our subject this week. A big subject for sure. So we've decided to focus on the peace that's been achieved in Northern Ireland following the Good Friday Agreement, which now seems to be coming under some stress. I'm delighted to welcome John Alderdice, Baron Alderdice of Knock, leader of the Non-Sectarian Alliance Party and a key figure in the peace process. Also with me, Dr. Neve Gallagher, fellow of St. Catherine's College, Cambridge, whose first book, Ireland and the Great War, won the Royal Historical Society's Whitfield Prize in 2020. So, a politician with a background in psychiatry, an award-winning historian, and me, a theologian. Maybe between us, we can have a peaceful discussion. John, do you agree with Janet Soskis that for peace to work, it needs to be at this everyday grassroots level?
3: I think there's a lot of truth in what she says, but I think we need to think about what we mean by peace. For a long time, the view that people had of peace was that it was the absence of violent political conflict. And that's a perfectly justifiable definition but it it became an unsatisfactory one for many people who had something of a a greater ambition for the possibilities. And uh, Johann Galtung developed a differentiation between what he called negative peace, which is what I've just described, the absence of open political violence, and positive peace, which was better societies. And what Janet was really referring to was that society needs to be judged not just by the absence of violence, but whether people can get on with living satisfactory lives. And what peace for me is about, and as I say, different people have their own definitions, but for me, what peace is about is good relationships between communities of people. And obviously, if there's a lot of violence going on. Not just violent political conflict in the traditional way or terrorist campaigns, but also violence in various other kinds of ways. Domestic violence, what Galton called institutional violence. These are not healthy, helpful, positive things about relationship. I see it a lot, for example, in some of the work I do with First Nation people, where they're unable to attack back whenever they're under pressure. So they turn the violence in and you get high levels of alcohol and drug abuse, domestic violence. So for me, the notion of peace has gone beyond those previous definitions to the possibility of better relationships within and between communities of people. And it's not so much a question of definition, really. It is, how do we achieve these things? And in many ways, that's what we were working at in the Irish peace process, then the Good Friday Agreement, and then what happens from that. And, of course, it doesn't move in a simple straight line and doesn't always move forward. I have an old friend, Van Vulcan, who works in these things, and he describes it as like playing an accordion. You know, you bring people together and they push each other apart. And you bring them together and push each other apart. And you keep working on this organic relationship. We're at a bit of a, a downer where things are being pushed apart at the moment in the British-Irish context. Uh, but that doesn't mean it's all going to pieces. It means that we're part of this organic process. So for me, that's what the issue of peace is about. And and is Janet right that that has to involve ordinary people and communities? Absolutely.
1: Neve, how would you apply that to the context of Northern Ireland?
2: So I think peace is something that can certainly happen between ordinary people when there is equality. And whether that's real equality, but also perceived equality in access to income, education, healthcare, and justice. I think all of those things are really important for groups who are historically divided to, I think, live together peacefully and I'm, I'm putting that in inverted commas they can carry on their ordinary lives but it doesn't necessarily mean that everyone is you know holding hands and singing every day in some sort of lovely 1960s reenaction. but all of those points that i said are themselves you know integrally related to the state and i think this is where it gets you know a little bit complicated or that quote becomes a bit more complicated Because as good as the efforts are of ordinary people to try and facilitate what I'm calling peace, which is effectively living together in a kind of agreed upon way, even if you're doing very different things, still the state plays an integral role within that. So the state needs to be considered, I think. It's not just a question of ordinary people, but it also is about whatever the state is or or states, plural, engage with its ordinary citizens. I think the
3: point that you make, Neve, that different people and different communities will have different perspectives and, and different sets of values and different aims and ambitions, indeed, is absolutely crucial because there sometimes is a bit of a notion particularly in those who are trying to create peace, that it's all about getting people to agree with each other and share perspectives and so on and so on. And what Isaiah Berlin, the the great philosopher, pointed out is that there is no agreement on the good and there isn't going to be agreement on the good. You know, what's good for the fox is not good for the rabbit unless the fox turns into a vegetarian, which is pretty unlikely business. So it's this business of being able to live with difference, which is why he described pluralism as being an essential for liberal democratic society. So I think you're absolutely right to point that up. And of course, I sometimes say that the Good Friday Agreement was not so much about agreeing, it was about learning how to disagree with each other without killing each other. And that may seem a modest ambition, but as you and I know very well, it was anything but a modest ambition in the Irish context. And it's a stage along a road to better relationships.
2: Absolutely. And just a final point on that, I mean, peace is a process. And there's sort of an idea that all of a sudden 1998 meant equal peace and therefore everything was over. Definitely not. Peace is constantly being worked at and it's changing in responsive to the context in which we live. So I think that's a really important point to keep in mind too.
1: One of the contexts of those discussions was, of course, the religious one. It was often perceived or at least portrayed as Protestant versus Catholic. To what extent was this true or is this still true?
2: I think it's quite a, a lazy, if not a very flawed way to look at what happened in Northern Ireland because it implies an, an inevitability that happened for decades, if not for centuries. And actually the conflict in Northern Ireland, my own view on this, and I would agree with people like Richard Burke, is that it is a product of shifting contingencies. It has long term structural factors that help to explain a divergence in power equalities between the Unionist majority and then the Catholic minority. And they're really important. It's also the context of the 1960s itself, the global civil rights movement, the fact that the welfare state had been brought to Northern Ireland, and you had a new generation of articulate Catholics who took this to the fore, and new political parties and and movements. It's the result of British policy of things such as the introduction of internment to, of course, the the bringing in of the army in 1969, there are very contingent events that help to explain how a protracted crisis over civil rights in the 1960s degenerated into something that was much more violent and long-standing over a 30-year period. So I think religion is a really bad explanation, actually, of the Northern Irish Troubles, and it's quite a lazy and flawed way of looking at how it actually came about.
3: Lazy and flawed, John. I think there's a lot of truth in what Neve says. Even the notion of Protestant and Catholic is not a historically very thoughtful way of looking at it because in the past, in Ireland, Protestant meant Anglican, And Presbyterians were not Protestants. They were dissenters, as far as the description was concerned. They were Protestant, Catholic and dissenter. And within the dissenters, of course, they dissented considerably with each other. Some were really quite radical. Some were really quite conservative. Some were strongly for a united Ireland. Um, The culture was really critical. And for example, the the translation of the Bible into Irish was something promoted by Irish Presbyterians, not by Irish Catholics, because the Catholic Church, of course, was still conducting its services in Latin. It didn't particularly want people to read the Bible at all. Whereas for Presbyterians, much more than for Anglicans, the reading of the scriptures in your own language was really important. I suppose one of the difficulties is, in a sense, religion is a quite modern notion, Previously, people didn't describe themselves as religious and non-religious. Religion was your way of being in the world, your way of engaging with the universe, how you construed things, how you understood things, how you shared that with the rest of your community. Once that began to diverge and you got some people taking one line, some people another, then you got people talking about religion and different religions. But actually, it's a much wider, deeper cultural question. And as Neve says, you've got to dig into that to really understand what has been happening, and indeed, perhaps even more importantly, what may be happening. Let me give you one example. People would look at the DUP, Democratic Unionist Party, for example, and say, well, clearly a Protestant party, pro-British, pro union. And they themselves would describe themselves in that kind of way. But some very interesting things are happening. They were the party, more than any others that voted for Brexit, whose consequence was to create difficulties in the relationship with the rest of the United Kingdom post the Good Friday Agreement. And there's been a lot of discussion and talk about that and about why they did it. And I don't think they themselves completely understand. They were driven by feelings more than by political analysis. But it's not the only thing. The Presbyterian Church in Ireland recently made a decision to break its relationship with the Church of Scotland, which was the mother church. Why was that? Because the Church of Scotland was much more liberal in its approach to gender issues, for example, and sexual identity issues. And so that group of Protestants is actually not just pulling away in terms of its attitude to Brexit, but actually pulling away in its attitude to other issues that are religious, cultural, whatever kind of word you use to describe them. It's becoming a more isolated, Orphan community. And that's got serious implications inside and outside. And of course, it's a divided community, too. Because by no means do all Protestants follow that view. On the contrary, many disagree profoundly with it, religiously, politically, and so on. So I think Neve's advice to us to dig into it and be a little bit more nuanced and sophisticated in our understanding is absolutely right. And we have to do that not just in terms of our analysis of the past, though that's a very helpful guide, as Neve, as a historian would tell us, but also as we understand the present and where it may be taking us.
1: I'd like to ask one more question before we have a break, and I've got so many to ask, I don't know which to choose. But I think we should go back to the beginning, which is what you talked about, John, in terms of building relationships. That peace to thrive or to be created, one has to have relationships between people, between communities. You personally engaged in conversations with Sinn Fein, with other banned parties, well before the Good Friday Agreement, and. Was that vital, do you think, to the peace process as we have it today?
3: I think it was absolutely crucial because you can only build up relationships with people when you engage with them in dialogue, not just talking to them, but perhaps more importantly, listening to them. The problem for me was not engaging with Sinn Féin, but how could one do that at a time when violence was still going on. And so before the ceasefire, in fact, I well remember in a, a programme with the late Larry King in the United States in 1994, Jerry Adams and I were both being interviewed. And I said to Jerry on the programme, because we hadn't met and we weren't going to be meeting, I said, I'm prepared to meet with you, but there has to be a cessation of the violence. And of course, very fortunately and positively, a few months later, there was such a cessation of violence and it was possible to engage. And then the loyalists stopped their violence and it was possible to engage with them as well. And the whole thing began to move on to an entirely different footing because we weren't operating in a context of ongoing, major, destructive political violence.
1: Neve, speaking as a historian, what's your view of the various amnesties involved in the settlement? Was it a case of not letting the perfect be the enemy of the good?
2: This is a difficult question, I think. I mean, the Good Friday Agreement enshrined in it amnesty for political prisoners, and I think something along the lines of 400 political prisoners, many of whom had been members of paramilitary groups, were given an amnesty for horrific killings that had been conducted throughout the Troubles. So in some ways, yes, it's not a case of letting the the perfect be the enemy of the good, because it was understood that these prisoners were very central to communities, and that by giving them that amnesty, you were in a way bolstering communities in their support for the agreement. But then this does raise the question of victims. And I think victims have been, I wouldn't say forgotten or neglected, but I think they have really suffered, not throughout the troubles, but right up to the present, and particularly this crucial relationship between peace and justice itself. And I think there'll be different views on how victims themselves should be considered within this. Is it really important to give them the justice that they receive, that they should receive because of paramilitary killings, whether Republican or Loyalist, or indeed state-led killings from the army and then the security forces? Or is it better for the society as a whole to give amnesty to groups who committed very violent acts, which are against human rights and international law and domestic law and, and any other type of law, for the ultimate welfare of the wider society? It's a really difficult question and I don't think I have one single view on it.
1: This is Naked Reflections with me, Ed Kessler, my guests this week are John Alderdeiss and Neve Gallagher. We're discussing the concept of peace, particularly peace in Northern Ireland. Rebellion, which in this context could be considered as threatening the peace, can take place in science, just as it can in politics. Here's an extract from the article Rebellion Against Science by Martin Westwell on the Naked Scientist website.
0: Rebellions come about when beliefs or rules are imposed by one group of people upon another. Those on which the imposition is made are pushed so far until they can no longer bear it, and then they rebel. For many years, the scientific establishment has imposed upon society truths that have to be accepted and technologies that have to be adopted. The way to prevent a rebellion against science is to get people to buy into the scientific process and explain why science has come to a particular conclusion including
1: the pros and cons of the resulting position. Taking a lead from the clip, is asymmetry, political, religious, social and so on, at the root of Ulster's unpeaceful years?
2: Well, I think a lot of people have considered it to be at the root of Ulster's unpeaceful years. And, you know, when do Ulster's unpeaceful years begin? They certainly don't begin in 1969. Use of the word Ulster is the province, not even Northern Ireland. So one might go back until Ulster itself first emerged with these sorts of difficulties, and then where are we at? One could say it's the nineteenth century when there are several instances of riots between Protestants and Catholics. One might go back further to the eighteenth century, or even right through to the plantations of Ireland in the mid fifteen hundreds. But I again, I think this is a little bit like the question asked earlier, where this idea of asymmetry between Catholics and Protestants. Sort of condenses historical time hundreds of years into these particular polarities like they were static pretty much the the entire time. And I think that's a really flawed way of looking at what happened in Northern Ireland. I mean, certainly there were asymmetries and there were asymmetries between Catholics and Protestants in the first Stormont administration from 1921 through to its collapse in 1972 when Northern Ireland Parliament was, was prorogued and brought under the control of Westminster. There's certainly power asymmetries. There's a one-party state, one-party rule, the Austrian Unionist Party, and there is over a 90% Protestant membership of the security services, the Royal Ulster Constabulary, at the time. So there certainly is asymmetry between Catholics and Protestants in that sense. But there's also asymmetry within these various groups. In that first Stormont administration, there is not one working-class representative who is part of that ultra Unionist party. And this is a real asymmetry based on class within the politics and communities of unionism. And this is something that I think endures right up almost to the present. And that's a really interesting exercise for us as historians to try and think about. And there are asymmetries on the other side. And this is where these sorts of sides and binaries and categories are really of limited use to understanding anything about Northern Ireland. Because people confuse nationalism with republicanism, when actually they are quite different. And there are multiple nationalisms, all sitting alongside each other with different views on how to take forward their particular political views and aims. Similarly, within Republicans, there is not one republicanism, there are republicanisms, plural. So I think it's not a great way of understanding northern ireland if you're using it as a basis upon which to think about unionists and nationalists protestants and catholics but it is slightly more useful when you can kind of twist that around and think about the asymmetries within those groups between rural and urban areas which themselves are a big thing between belfast and the rest of northern ireland because really when we're talking about about the troubles many people are focusing on belfast they're not really thinking about border communities which are themselves something that deserve consideration whether it's economic differentials and class differentials so there are asymmetries but maybe not the ones you would commonly think of whenever we go to Northern Ireland
3: I think the point that Neve is making about what one might describe as complexity is really very important indeed. And it gets forgotten about a lot in terms of the peace process. The peace process was not about simply sorting things out between Protestants and Catholics in the North. The whole point of the thing was to understand that there were a series or a complexity. Of sets of relationships that were important. There was the internal Protestant, Catholic, Unionist, Nationalist relationship within Northern Ireland, but there was also the North South relationship and the East West relationship. There were other relationships too with with Europe and the United States, but there were these three key sets of relationships, which is why there were three separate but interacting strands in the talks process and three interlocking sets of institutions that emerged from it. That was necessary because you couldn't deal with the complexity of the situation and the relationships by just addressing one, as had largely been the case in the past, just addressing one or or perhaps two sets of relationships. And indeed, the failure to continue to work all of those sets of relationships is part of what has created a lot of the problems over Brexit. I mean, the British-Irish Intergovernmental Conference, which was to bring together the British and Irish governments, didn't meet at a senior level for over 10 years, After the Good Friday game, not before it after it. And, and then they wonder why there was a problem over Brexit. In fact, lots of problems over Brexit. So I think Neve is absolutely right to counsel us that we should address the complexity of the relationships and sets of relationships if we're going to understand it. There are all sorts of elements to it. And they go back a long way. That's also absolutely true. You know, people in the north of the island were people were fighting with people in the rest of the island and bringing over their friends from what we now call Scotland to help them long before England was England that was going on. Uh, So there's a history to it. There's a complexity to it. What's important for all of us is to appreciate those things and then to build a better future out of it.
1: I have to confess, I'm much more confused now than I was at the beginning of this podcast.
3: (laughs) That means you're beginning to understand it, Ed.
2: Absolutely. That is the central point of uh, why we're here, Ed, is to confuse you and your listeners to get out of these very simplistic ways of explaining the Northern Irish conflict.
1: I want to dig down to this thing of history, John, you touched on it, and Leave you have too. Now, for many listeners living in countries that perhaps don't have the same intensity as it regards the history of their land or their neighbour's land, looking at other places in the world, not just Northern Ireland, but the Balkans or the Holy Land or other lands where one views history with such extreme intensity,
3: which tends to work against peace, I think that part of the difficulty is your current situation. If if you are in a country where things are at present and have been for a generation or two relatively peaceful, you feel able, in in most cases, to get on with your life and you'll be interested in the history and background, but it doesn't have the degree of immediacy. If, however, you're in a, a situation where there is conflict or where your country isn't in conflict, but you feel it is under existential threat, then those historic difficulties re-emerge with great significance for you. And really, there are probably no places in the world where there is not some history and background of a degree of conflict. Even those countries that we think about at the moment that are very interested in peace, but very peaceful themselves, countries like Norway, for example, you don't have to go back very far in the history of Norway itself, even to its foundation as a country, to find that there were all sorts of difficulties, not that different to some of the ones that we're describing. And of course, in their relationship with other places, including Britain and Ireland, there was considerable conflict in the past, which is of significance, It doesn't have that immediacy and that passionate engagement that you're referring to if things are going along reasonably well for the moment. But if something were to happen that shook that up, for the sake of argument, the Russians decided that they were going to invade the northern part of Norway. You would find the Norwegians starting to think about their history and their relationship with Russia in a wholly different way than they do currently when they don't have any expectation that something of that kind is going to happen in the next generation or so.
2: That's really interesting, John, and I think it's a really important point to remind everybody that it's not just Ireland or Northern Ireland and the Balkans or Israel-Palestine that are these sort of awkward places that can't seem to get history off their shoulders. Many countries have history ingrained in what they do, and Britain does as well. I think what the difference between Northern Ireland and Israel-Palestine, the Balkans, for example, or Greece-Cyprus, whatever it might be, is that these are histories based on something to do with the national question, and national questions that have provoked violence and civil conflict at some point in the past, or continue to do so today. And it's relatively easy if you're from a country where you haven't had national historical questions to be so divisive in everyday life, and shaped. The whole nature of how the countries themselves have formed, their political parties, their geography, how they teach their education, for example, it's very easy to be an outsider looking in and wonder why these places are so strange and awkward when you haven't had that experience yourselves or that particular type of experience. So I think that's something that's really important to keep in mind, that in all of these countries that are very divided and and have that hand of history constantly on their shoulders, which can be incredibly tiring. know they're there for particular reasons and it's because in the case of Northern Ireland I mean this very long-standing constitutional question is one might want to draw back many hundreds of years really I would say you know it dates to partition and all the kind of years around the formation of this region Northern Ireland and the creation of what becomes the Irish Free State and later on the Irish Republic You know, partition has been probably the central question in all of the island of Ireland for the last 100 years. It has influenced so many different trajectories of histories in the the south of Ireland. So in what's today the Republic of Ireland? We haven't said a whole lot about this. You know, the treaty that was formed in 1921 and we're in its centenary year this year. That's the Anglo-Irish Treaty formed between, in the end, 26 counties of Ireland, which have become the Republic today and between Britain, there is a civil war in Ireland, and particularly those 26 counties, over the terms of that agreement. We know in Northern Ireland, you have the formation of a Unionist government. So partition has been really a central question to determining histories, political parties, memory, you know, culture, family histories, right throughout the island of Ireland for the last 100 years. And no doubt the same is true if you were to take other examples like Israel and Palestine. So it's not that we're apparent in some way and just can't seem to get rid of history. History has been a mobilising force in shaping everything to do with politics and societies for quite a long time. And that is the difference between countries that have very strong national histories. And if
3: I could just pick up what Neve was saying there, when we look back, we need to remember quite a lot of bits of history that get wiped or airbrushed out. In Northern Ireland, for example, There was a a Labour Party for quite a long time that tried to address not just the differences between Protestants and Catholics, but between working class people and more middle and upper class people. But the Unionist party that was in government was so fearful about its own future and the future of Northern Ireland that it regarded any disagreement with its position as disloyal If they hadn't been so frightened about that and had facilitated the development of the Northern Ireland Labour Party, for example, it might well have opened up doors for a different kind of politics. But the Nationalist Party withdrew. The Northern Ireland Labour Party was never able to be in government. The Unionist Party caricatured them as disloyal when that was not in any meaningful sense the case. And what that did was froze the conflict, didn't allow the society to evolve and develop. And that's the key thing about relationships, which we've been talking about during this podcast, that society is about how we relate with each other and how communities relate with each other, which is a different thing from individual relationships. And if those relationships of communities with each other are not able to evolve in a positive way, they tend to deteriorate in a negative way. But they always move one way or the other. They don't just stay stable.
1: We're coming towards the end of this podcast, and I'd like you to nominate someone or some group, briefly, please, who's not received the credit they deserve in achieving peace.
3: Well, of course, there are lots of people who have done a very great deal for peace and the peace process whose names are not known and not celebrated. But the one person that I think hasn't received due appreciation is John Major, the British Prime Minister. People think about Tony Blair and, and subsequent British Prime Ministers and, of course, Irish Tishy, who were Critical in bringing things forward. But John Major started things off at a time when it was really quite a threat. His government was dependent on the unionists, and yet he started engaging with nationalists. He was absolutely critical, and I'm not at all convinced that Tony Blair would ever have picked up the Irish peace process if John Major hadn't started it. So I'd like to nominate him as someone that deserves to be remembered and regarded for his role in the Irish peace process.
2: So that's a very good nomination John and just to echo that the Conservative Party were really they were really important in the 90s in setting up the framework and the lines of communication that later on new labor would come to use and would bring about the Good Friday agreement so I'd agree with that Mo Molum is my nomination she was a very formidable Secretary of State for Northern Ireland who was the one who went into the prisons and indeed granted that amnesty so in, in that sense she might be quite controversial because of course we talked about victims they did not receive the justice that indeed they do deserve. But still, Mo Mullen broke protocol by doing that.
1: We have to stop there. That's all for this week. Thanks to my guests, John Alderdice and Neve Gallagher for their insights. And thank you for listening. Pleased to have you with us. If you enjoyed this podcast, why not look at our back catalogue of discussions? They're all available for your listening pleasure. And our 100th edition is on the horizon. So you may want to check out other podcasts from the Wolf Institute or from our friends at The Naked Scientist's. I'll be back next week with some more guests.
2: Botox Cosmetic, out botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you.